Welcome to the Kauffman Foundation's Uncommon Voices series, in which we highlight people who are working to make sure all Americans, regardless of their race, gender, or geography, are able to share in our country's prosperity. In this episode, three ecosystem experts break down why building more inclusive entrepreneurship systems is key to revitalizing and strengthening communities and the economy as a whole. Kim Wallace Carlson, Director of Engagement for the Kauffman Foundation, moderated the discussion with Philip Gaskin, Vice President of Entrepreneurship for the Kauffman Foundation, Tawana Black, Founder and CEO of Minneapolis-St. Paul-based Center for Economic Inclusion, and Brad Feld, Co-Founder of venture capital firm The Foundry Group, and author of the new book, The Startup Community Way, Evolving an Entrepreneurial Ecosystem. Here's Kim. Welcome to this Kaufman conversation about a topic taking on new urgency, rebuilding an economy devastated by a global pandemic and still mired in racial inequality. We know entrepreneurs fuel our economy. Businesses less than five years old create nearly all net new jobs in the United States, but many are hampered by lack of access to the resources needed to create and sustain those jobs and to give back to their communities. Entrepreneurs hardest hit in this economy are also those with the least access to resources, people of color, women, and those in rural communities. Now, more than ever, America's entrepreneurs will underpin the rebuilding of our economy. We can't afford the systemic inequities and structural barriers that are preventing underserved entrepreneurs from starting and growing businesses. How do we rebuild better entrepreneurial ecosystems with a level playing field so those entrepreneurs facing barriers due to their demographics have direct access to knowledgeable entrepreneurs, small business advisors, financial experts, and capital? I'm Kim Wallace Carlson, Director of Engagement and Entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation. I'll be facilitating our conversation about practical steps to overcoming these challenges with three experts who represent key aspects of entrepreneurial ecosystems. Tawana Black brings a perspective from leading an organization dedicated to creating inclusive regional economies. She is founder and CEO of the Minneapolis St. Paul based Center for Economic Inclusion. Tawana is a nationally recognized thought leader known for influencing, inspiring, and equipping cross-sector leaders to transform equality into actions that produce equitable and thriving communities. Thank you for being here, Tawana. Thank you. Our next panelist, Brad Feld, brings a complex systems approach to the conversation, which he addresses in his latest book, The Startup Community Way, Evolving an Entrepreneurial Ecosystem. This book establishes the systemic properties of these ecosystems and explains why their complex nature leads people to make predictable mistakes. In addition to being an author, Brad is co-founder of the Boulder-based venture capital firm, The Foundry Group, and co-founder of Techstars. Welcome, Brad. Thanks. Our third panelist is Philip Gaskin. He will talk about the root causes of systemic inequities for entrepreneurs and how to break through the barriers, especially in access to capital. Philip is Vice President of Entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation, and he brings deep expertise in developing diverse entrepreneurial ecosystems. At the foundation, he focuses on eliminating systemic barriers to entrepreneurship and enhancing economic activity through inclusive entrepreneurship. Okay, let's dive in. I'd like to start by asking our panelists why, it, why it's important for those who are working to grow regional economies to consider the mix of people who are participating in entrepreneurship. Philip, can you talk about what the opportunity is for our economy if we were able to ensure more people were able to grow businesses? Sure, thank you, Kim. I, you know, entrepreneurs um, are so core to our economy and, and job creation. And you know, when we look back, entrepreneurship has been in a decline for, for, for quite a while. So this has been, you know, the problem has been growing um, for, for a number of years. For about 20 years, the, the rate of new entrepreneurship has just been pretty much just flat. And um, in today's environment, we're seeing that the more inclusive an ecosystem is, the more entrepreneurs that can be part of um, the, the, uh, have the opportunity and access to start and grow a business is so important. The challenge is not everyone has that, that, that fair shot. Uh, unequal access leads, um, leaves people behind. So from an economic perspective, you've got to have strong, vibrant economy, yes, but you've got to have entrepreneurs um, that are led by women, uh, businesses, pardon me, that are led by women, by people of color, by people in rural environments, all these different um, demographics and geographies, they were just having the hardest time getting in the game. And so um, when we look at where 
will be as a nation in 10 to 20 years demographically with most of the uh, half the country being made of women and people of color. So we're going to have to have more people from those demographics being able to start businesses, grow businesses, employ people who will then be able to um, uh, participate in, in the economy. So this is about economic viability and, and survival for our country. And, and we have to be much more interdependent, as I say, uh, in order for us to see um, opportunity for all and for the uh, economy, economy to uh, survive and thrive in the future. Thank you, Philip. Tawana, can you talk about the recent racial unrest in Minneapolis and how you think a more inclusive economy might address some of the needs of black and brown communities here? Absolutely. First of all, I would say that in what happened here in Minneapolis, when we saw a black man killed at the hands of the very people who were hired and paid to be able to protect all of our communities day in and day out was not the first time that Americans saw something similar take place, really the unjust justice taking place um, in our communities. And yet we're grateful that um, for once our communities are coming to reckon with the deep racism that takes place in not only our streets, but in boardrooms and policy rooms and employers in many places across our country day in and day out. And we are all having to reckon with that and say, what is it that it will take for us to start to create the day in um, policies, the practices, um, uh, the justice that is really needed for us to truly have not only an economy that works for everyone, but communities that work for everyone. And when we think about um, entrepreneurship, um, that is certainly a major piece of that. We know that entrepreneurship creates um, real meaningful opportunities for wealth creation and sustainability, particularly in black and brown communities um, throughout our country. And while we see African-Americans in particular creating businesses at a faster rate than many other communities, we don't see that translating into increases in family sustaining employment. And so it gives us pause and an opportunity to ask what will it take for us to see that growth in business creation also translate into a growth of wealth creation and what strategies we can start to put in place, what translates into um, uh, also transferences of power, translations of uh, capital, what investments of capital can take place. And here in uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, those are some of the questions that we're wrestling with following um, not only that unrest, but really I would say that uprising of people saying enough is enough. It's time for us to uphold those ideals of um, uh, justice, those ideals of true inclusion, those beliefs that all people um, can and should be able to thrive and create real opportunity um, uh, that our country um, continues to uphold. Thank you, Tawana. And Brad, to build on that, you say startup communities are deeply influenced by their local history and culture. How do those factors and some of the things that Tawana just spoke about play into rebuilding the entrepreneurial ecosystems that can be more inclusive? There's, there's two dimensions, I think, that are very interesting here. Uh, the first, is if you go back to the book I wrote in 2012, uh, Startup Communities, which really created the label Startup Communities that today is uh, on the present. I created a thing called the Boulder Thesis. And in that Boulder Thesis, the third principle was uh, startup communities have to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage at any level. So I had sort of that construct as a starting point combined with a very place-based model. And that place-based model of geography was built on the thesis and the assertion that I had that basically any city with at least 100,000 people, and I've changed that from can have a startup community to has to have a startup community to keep the city vibrant over a long period of time. So you have this sort of intersection of these two constructs. One is this notion of sort of the power of place and people are attracted to the place they live in for a variety of reasons. And there's a number of different resources um, that cause a city to be a city. Uh, it's not just uh, what's happened over a period of time. If you think about every city, every city was once a startup. People decided to like create a city in this location. And that generated a whole bunch of different characteristics of the city some of which are cultural, some of which are network driven, some of which are intellectual, 
uh, some of which are financial, some of which are cultural. All of these phenomena uh, play on the growth and development of the startup community around that particular place. And so putting a lens of inclusivity of anyone who wants to engage creates a very powerful positive feedback loop in that city because the startup community often is the innovation engine of the health, growth, and development of the city over time. So if you're allowing that innovation engine or enabling that innovation engine to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage, you start to wire the notion of broad inclusivity into everything that's going on around entrepreneurship as you generate the next wave of new innovation on many dimensions in that place. Thank you, Brad. I'd like to turn now to talking about the many obstacles that potential entrepreneurs face. For each of you, what factors do you see getting in the way of more people starting and growing their businesses? What, what role do you see entrepreneurship support organizations and champions playing to help people overcome these barriers? Tawana, let's start with you. Well, I really, um, I think that the timing of that question following what Brad just shared is really timely. I think about being here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, one of the homes of some of the largest um, Fortune 500 companies um, in the country. We have a large number of them. And you think about innovation and how you enable innovation, how you create a community that thrives on innovation. Um, and at one point, we were certainly that, right? If you think about having had Pillsbury and General Mills, um, Cargill, some of the largest names, right, in a place that's stirred up that innovation and constantly fueled it. You have to, though, be willing to continue to enable that. And what are those factors of enabling it when it shows up in many different faces, um, when it looks different than you might normally um, see it look? And whether that look is in race, whether that look is in age and gender, whether that look is in language, um, whether it's in sector, you have to be willing to continue to fuel it. And by fueling it, it, sometimes that may be in the way that you invest in it, in capital and financial capital. It may be the way that you invest in it in your social capital in the doors that you open, the willingness to hear an idea, to cultivate that idea, to create space for it, um, or simply the way that you don't put roadblocks in front of those ideas and continue to, to um, cultivate them. In our willingness to say that an idea, innovation, creativity, um, is not just allowing it, but enabling it, we also say that we welcome that, that we think it, it is vital to our communities and their ability to continue to prosper, and not just a good to have, but a necessary to have for the places that we um, operate in. And so when we think about here in our organization, in our community, um, how we fuel innovation, how we fuel creativity, and an economy that works for everyone, we don't just say that diversity is a nice to have, that it is something that is charitable. We say it's necessary for our economy to grow. It's not just important for communities of color to have entrepreneurship for themselves or for different neighborhoods or districts to have small businesses that are thriving, but we say it's important for those businesses who are owned by communities of color to have family sustaining jobs that continue to grow because that is the only way that our economy is going to grow. But that requires a shift in the mindset of supplier diversity officers, of procurement officers inside corporations to not only be thinking about those supplier diversity programs as charitable, but to be thinking of them as core business units, right? As, as core to their ability to grow business, as core to the environments and the regions that we operate in to continue to thrive and create um, vitality for the cities that we're living in and operating in. Um, which is drastically different, I think, than the way that we tend to think about inclusive entrepreneurship, inclusive economies, racial diversity, racial inclusivity. It requires us to think about it as being us and we instead of them um, and other. Thank you, Tawana. Philip, you work with a lot of entrepreneur support organizations. What are some of the most common obstacles that they are seeing their entrepreneurs face? And what are some of the obstacles that the organizations themselves are facing when they're trying to help entrepreneurs and, of course, help their communities? Well, you know, I'll start with um, continuing on from Tawana there, which was a wonderful um, platform on, on, on diversity. You know, something I always say that you can, have a, you can have a diverse room of people. You can have an inclusive room of people. Doesn't mean the room of people is equitable. And so the equity everyone having an equal voice, an equal shot, an equal seat at the front table is really in, in, important. And I see our entrepreneur support organizations through a range of different barriers that get in the way 
of entrepreneurs starting businesses are really looking at how to, that equity uh, equity piece. And I'll center it out, I'll anchor it in capital for, for, for this question. Um, is the lack of capital or access to capital is one of the greatest obstacles that un underrepresented and underserved entrepreneurs have. And, and the part of that access is, are, are they seen as viable? Are you, am I seen as viable enough for you to even invest in? Because that's the first step. Before I, you give me my, before I get to the doorstep, come in the house, so to speak, you know, and I want to get to the doorstep, you've got to see me as viable of even being there. And that doesn't happen enough in the, in the capital arena. And there's all these different constructs that have happened over the years in the, in the, in the capital space that have made it unequitable. So let's look at it across, you know, racial, the racial spectrum. So on average, African-American entrepreneurs start with um, less capital, much less capital, less family wealth to rely on and much li less likely to get bank loans or even other forms of investment. And new Black-owned businesses start with at least three times less, uh, less capital overall compared to uh, white-owned businesses and on and on. And so if look at it from a credit perspective, 57% of Black people who applied for credit were denied um, or approved for less than what was requested than 24% white um, people applying did. So there's all of these different things that are just there that I call these constructs that need to be reconstructed, if you will, um, or even rethought or re reinvented in order for these barriers um, to go away. But they're, they're systemic, they're in the stream, they're things that sometimes can't, can't be seen um, but they're very, they're, they're large. Um, and so, you know, it's just capital is just so important to an entrepreneur in so many different ways. Um, but there's too many swings and misses that are happening for too many from underrepresented populations. And it can, even from a zip code perspective as well. So you could be, you're a, um, in rural America and because of where you're sitting, you may be seen as well, your, your idea just really can't be that important because you're in rural America. You're not one of the top five uh, geographic locations where over 75% of all venture capital goes to and on and on. So these are the things that um, are important to not only the entrepreneurs, the entrepreneur support organizations, uh, but for our economy overall. Thank you, Philip. Brad, you say that one obstacle to supporting startup activity in a community is the disconnect between the entrepreneurial mindset and that of those who want to engage and support entrepreneurship. What's needed to overcome that barrier, barrier and what other obstacles do you see? There's a wide range of challenges, but uh, one of the things I've learned over time uh, is getting alignment around language. And, uh, you know, Philip just gave a great example, actually I gave two great examples, one around inclusion, diversion, uh, diversity and equity. And I think the conversation today around equity uh, has changed the language around inclusion and diversity in a very powerful and very constructive way uh, where, and I'll put myself in the category of, you know, it's one thing to talk about inclusivity. Uh, it's another thing to talk about diversity. It's yet another thing to understand equity and include equity in that conversation. I'm gonna use a second example uh, that, that Philip had and, and sort of press deeper on it because it's, it's a challenge that's very interesting if you link it back to place that uh, my co-author Ian Hathaway and I uh, spent time deconstructing in our new book in the startup community way. And sorry to sound like a book salesman, but uh, having, having spent many, 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 many hours working on uh, the writing and the thinking of this and hoping that some of this will be, uh, the new book will be influential for the next you know, decade in the same way the previous book was influential in the last decade. We have uh, deconstructed the notion of capital. And what we realized was that when people uh, were talking about capital, just like Philip was talking about it recently, you know, last, the last thread, they're talking about money. And in the context, and there's nothing wrong with that, like that that's, but that's what people mean when they say capital. In the context of startup communities and entrepreneurship, there are actually multiple types of capital in a geography. And one of the challenges uh, and it could be ge geography, and it also could be in an industry, it could be uh, in, a, in any sort of socioeconomic 
class or background of the entrepreneurs or network that exists. And the idea is not, oh, you don't have financial capital, don't worry about it. It's, oh, there's a real dearth of financial capital in lots of places. Interestingly, though, many of the cities, especially cities that have lots of other capitals, have plenty of money in those cities. It's just not allocated towards entrepreneurship. And you know, a city like Kansas City is such a powerful example when you have an extremely successful entrepreneur like Mr. K, who then starts to allocate his, his financial capital, his money towards entrepreneurial activity, whether it's startups, new companies, or entrepreneurial support organizations, getting that kind of alignment in the language over time ends up being pretty powerful. So I would encourage people when they think about alignment between, for example, entrepreneurs, what we now call instigators, which are members of feeder organizations, like all the entrepreneur support organizations, but who are leaders in the startup community. So they play a leadership role, but they're not, they're not necessarily entrepreneurs. And then the organizations themselves who are critically important, getting them aligned and talking about things in the same way, focusing on things they have abundance of to amplify progress and momentum and attract resources uh, or capital that they might not have in that startup community becomes very powerful. This is not the only solution, right? This is just a piece of all of the layers. And I just wanna sort of end on the conversation about equity, because I think for me, at least, you know, in the last six months, it's been very, uh, very meaningful to shift my own mental model from this notion of diversity uh, and this notion of inclusion to the notion of equity, which if you talked to me a year ago would not have been a word I would have used. And maybe today is not a word that I totally understand in all aspects of my behavior, um, but I uh, appreciate the significant difference and are co and constantly searching for how to weave those things together in a way that's much more powerful. Thank you, Brad, and you've set me up for our next topic. So let's let's move on to talk about underserved communities a little more generally. In addition to the disparities in entrepreneurial opportunity due to race, at the Kauffman Foundation, we're also considering gender and geography as factors that work against people. I'd like to ask each of you, do you see these factors entirely different and need to be addressed separately? Or are there ways to more broadly level the playing field? Philip, can you get us started on this? We tend to as we should as a nation come together around when we're in um, periods of, of strife or what have you. So we have, we've had 9-11, we've had the Great Recession, we have COVID um, and the, the social sphere of what's happening now. In between these periods, we tend to, there's the tendency to fall back apart. So we come together, fall back apart. And it seems like in each, period, which is about 10 years apart, is the silos start happening again. And the inequity, but the inequ and the inequities continue to grow. So what's just happened in this period right now in the last six months is it's just been so profound. So that meaning that so many people have have been able to experience them, that there's more that there's more conversation. Will we Will we continue on a path and not just try to check a box and move on and say, hey, we address this? I've mentioned systems and systems change and what am I talking about? And so I've talked about the capital system. Let's let's a, a day in the life of the entrepreneur and all of us, all of us here today know these these personas. That starting out, and I need to go across town to the co-working space or to the center that's doing some education on entrepreneurship, but uh, transportation, public transportation isn't as affordable or the bus line isn't running like it used to or it's too far across. So you have a trans, you have the transportation system and, and infrastructure um, that affects entrepreneurs. Healthcare, I'm starting a business, I'm employing people. The cost of healthcare to employ the people is becoming a barrier for me growing. Childcare, I need my, my a child to be um, looked after and intended to so that I could spend time on the business, but it's too hard and it's, it's not affordable. And that's a barrier and on and on. So there's these systemic overlays 
that um, I think that transformationally need to be reinvented, reimagined, restructured, et cetera, in order so that every race, gender, et cetera, all on the same level playing field um, can, can, can thrive. Um, I'll stop there, but I, Kim, I see it all, all intertwined. Thank you. Brad, what's your take on this? I'm going to reinforce what Philip said with three examples. So complete agreement. Um, and the examples are of things that are being done in Colorado uh, that try to deal with the independent but overlapping systems. Uh, I'm going to talk, uh, the three examples are rural Colorado, uh, something called uh, the Energized Colorado Gap Fund, which has been uh, merged out of COVID. Uh, and then the third is something called Entrepreneurs for All, which started in Massachusetts and is now uh, uh, got its second uh, location in Colorado. Uh, about five years ago, maybe even a little bit longer in rural Colorado, there were a number of entrepreneurs who basically started saying, hey, uh, we need to change the way uh, things, the things work in terms of the dynamics between the Front Range of Colorado and rural Colorado. In Colorado, the population is about 70% of the population of the state is in about 20% of the land area of the state. So it's very distributed uh, rural state. Those are small towns. Um, I, I live part-time in Aspen. Aspen is 5,000 permanent residents. So it's actually quite hard to build a startup community in Aspen, even though there's an enormous amount of wealth in Aspen. And if you get in your car and drive 20 or 30 or 40 miles away, all of a sudden you're outside of that ski community but there's still a huge opportunity for entrepreneurial activity. And so one of the things that we've really worked on doing in Colorado through an effort that was amplified by a nonprofit called Startup Colorado, um, supporting lots of other organizations throughout the state has been to create much more interlinking between the city, the, front, the cities, the front range and rural Colorado and entrepreneurs make understand the language of rural entrepreneurs because many entrepreneurs in rural states don't, or rural places don't identify as entrepreneurs. Their capital needs and their capital dynamics tend to be different. And because the cities tend to be small and diffuse, you're not able to anchor on a specific geography, but you actually have to focus on broader geography. So that, that would be an example on one dimension. Second example, when the COVID crisis hit, uh, there are a number of things that spun up very quickly in Colorado, including an economic council that I was part of, and I was responsible for companies under 500 employees. That generated a new nonprofit called Energize Colorado, which is now about 250 volunteers who are actively engaged uh, throughout Colorado, helping small businesses throughout the state survive and emerge out of the COVID crisis. Um, in that one of the initiatives that emerged very early was a gap fund or a fund to provide grants and very low interest loans, 1% loans to companies with 25 employees or less. And part of that then got accelerated and really amplified by the uh, inequity of PPP and PPP distribution. Um, if you were a business that was unbanked or didn't have a banking relationship with a 7A lender or didn't have a banking relationship with one of the major banks that was able to allocate PPP funding, you were out of luck because none of those banks would take you on as a customer if you were a tiny little company in financial distress. And as a result, you then couldn't get PPP money. Our priority areas for these loans were uh, women, uh, minority-led business, veteran-led business and rural business. And of the loans and grants that we're deploying, um, we're really proud that 90% of them are going to those four priority areas. So again, sort of rapid response, but sort of very clear significant need in those areas just to keep businesses alive. Last example, I think that fills in what, uh, what uh, Philip said is uh, entrepreneurs for all. This is an entrepreneurship mentor program, accelerator program started by uh, Desh Despande, a very successful entrepreneur in Boston. Uh, the chair is Gail Goodman. Uh, Gail is also a very successful entrepreneur in Boston. And their observation was that entrepreneurs in the um, depressed cities around Boston 
uh, that were once very successful cities, mill towns and industrial towns of the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, that have very, very broad, uh, diverse uh, local communities, uh, but that tend to have lots of structural inequities, lots of financial challenges. Um, they don't connect to the Boston and Cambridge startup communities. Um, they don't look the same, they don't act the same. Like you can't get from Waverly to Boston very easily. You certainly can't get from Waverly to Boston if you're a single mom with two kids uh, working full-time to support your kids and trying to start your company on the side. And they had the mentors, the Boston-based and Cambridge-based entrepreneurs go to the entrepreneurs in these towns and support them in these towns where the entrepreneurs were trying to create their businesses. In Colorado, we've done the same. I mean, we're not just talking gender or race uh, or geography, but you know, the answer is yes to all. But the underlying dynamics and the underlying challenges are very different, but connected. And I think broadly, we can have impact on all of them simultaneously, but you have to continue. I think one has to continue to recognize that they are foundationally different issues. Thank you, Brad. Tawana, how would you add to this? There's a lot of factors at play, race, class, gender, location. Absolutely. I think all the points that have been raised thus far to your question about whether or not we can address each of those issues at the same time or whether or not we have to address them individually um, is a an important question to ask. And the factors that have been raised so far are important ones. Um, several years ago, Dr. Manuel Pastor said the only cities and regions that would move forward in the future economy were those that could talk about race and could talk about it all the time. And we echo that in our work with cities and with businesses, but also added to that, that the cities and communities, and in particular, the businesses who could talk about race and talk about it well with a lens toward equity, but could also understand the importance of place and of income at the same time would be those that could move forward. And explicitly, not only talking about race, but understanding the importance of racism and then income and place at the same time and understanding the context with which we're talking about. So while the question asked about underserved communities, I think I'd reposition it to talk about undercapitalized communities and populations and what solutions we have to bring to bear. And I would add to that the framing that was offered earlier. We're actually coming back in to repair damage that has been done. We're coming back in to give wealth back that has oftentimes been extracted, particularly when we're talking about communities of color. And so seeing entrepreneurism as a vehicle to then repair the damage that has been done to give back the wealth that has been extracted from those particular communities of color, in particular for Black and Native communities, then we have to be intentional in thinking about place, race, gender, and income at the same time, but with very targeted solutions that don't look through the lens to say what is missing in those particular populations that then we need to repair, but to think about the assets that exist within those populations and how is entrepreneurism then a vehicle to then move communities forward economically, but being very targeted and knowing that we must come in elevating the assets that already exist in communities and not perpetuating the deficit-based narratives that have too often been created about those communities that don't create equitable partnerships, that don't create um, partnerships that are going to then dispel the myths around race that unfortunately um, have kept our community in lockstep where we are, where we see a vast number of businesses created but yet we don't see that wealth generation that we would expect to be created in those communities of color, particularly among um, women-owned businesses in communities of color where we're not seeing that wealth generation that we should expect to see. They need capital. And so we have to be specific in targeting the tools and resources that are going to accelerate growth in businesses, um, particularly when those businesses have had the support, have had the guidance, but need the door open. Perhaps maybe it's a door of um, capital, but social capital that needs to be open. It's the door of procurement that needs to be open. But when we're coming into partner, needing to be really specific and targeted about what partnership looks like, that's really going to move the door toward growing well. Thank you, Tawana. You set me up beautifully again to our next uh, topic. So we've talked about why building more inclusive entrepreneurial ecosystems is vital for our economy. We've talked about some of the common barriers to this. What can we do about it? We want some practical, short-term and long-term solutions that we can put to use right away. 
Tawana, I just want to go back to what you've been saying. What are some effective strategies that you've seen in Minneapolis or elsewhere that have encouraged more people to become entrepreneurs? Absolutely. We think about what's happening right now. Many of us are responding to the moment, COVID-19, and the deployment of new resources or tools or strategies. And so we've seen um, our cities and county governments in particular respond to the CARES Act dollars that have flowed into our communities. And luckily for us, thankfully for us, those have come often without the restrictions um, and barriers that our federal government typically deploys and allow cities and counties to be very targeted with the dollars and resources they have into businesses who didn't benefit from PPP and businesses who they might not normally be deploying resources to have allowed them to deploy dollars into businesses as grants without um, loan dollars and at the same time marry them with very low interest loans and rates and then be able to monitor to say how many jobs do these dollars allow businesses to create. Um, uh, just today I saw new um, resources out helping us understand what type of savings um, are these allowing both businesses and employees to create as a result of this. So I think this gives us an opportunity to measure how creative we've gotten in the last six months with the deployment of new dollars and resources um, alongside technical assistance and other more traditional means of capital um, flows to be able to create and stimulate new job growth alongside entrepreneurship. So that's one is let's stay in this creative mode um, that we've been forced into as a result of COVID-19. The second is partnering up some of these public um, dollars, philanthropy dollars with the private sector and thinking about procurement. We're taking a page um, from our friends in Ohio to be able to think alongside our private sector procurement partners and really stimulating not just supplier diversity for supplier diversity sake, but supplier diversity for the sake of job growth and really focusing in on how we can attract um, more business owners in those industries and sectors where we know our large corporations have the ability to penetrate. Um, and really, that may mean attracting new entrepreneurs who aren't thinking about opening a business into doing so. It may mean taking four entrepreneurs and helping them create a larger business together that has the capacity to be able to attract larger contracts from our large um, corporations, um, but really see that as an opportunity not only for incubators and accelerators, but really expanding that procurement in place. Um, which is, I think, an attractive solution for a market like ours that has a lot of um, large global corporations who could easily hit their supplier diversity um, goals without spending in um, the local market, but spending those dollars perhaps with MBEs all across the um, nation, frankly, um, and not thinking about place. So for us to be able to hit our own place-based goals and grow entrepreneurship locally, we need to be working hand in hand with those corporations, hand in hand with our startup uh, community, hand in hand with those CDFIs, um, and really being targeted about where we create startups, how we grow startups, mergers and acquisitions um, within that um, locally owned economy. Thank you. Philip, can you discuss some practical steps that communities might take to encourage more equitable entrepreneur focus economic development? So I talked about all the different barriers to entrepreneurs um, getting getting capital and being seen as viable and getting in, in capital, especially those from underrepresented populations. So um, we've uh, created a capital access lab, which is to promote and scale innovative mechanisms to get fun, um, funds, investment funds to fund managers who in turn are investing in these entrepreneurs from underrepresented populations. So it's a model. We'll see or we'll see how it works. We've invested in the in the first five or the first five funds have been invested in. But remember, let's go back to the numbers. 83% of entrepreneurs do not access venture capital or um, traditional traditional bank loans. So you've got to find a different way, a uh, different way to do that. Another is just an, 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 uh, back to Brad's wonderful points on uh, the connectedness of, of communities and providing pathways for entrepreneurs to get to different geographic locations or get into different rooms. Uh, and that is our, our 1 million cups uh, platform across the United States, over approximately 170 cities, where once a week, entrepreneurs come as a community, a created community. This is all volunteer led, but communities across the United States where entrepreneurs can come and, and present on a weekly basis where they are with their business, um, things that they need, and they're talking to an audience of supporters that can help with ideas, might be able to help with uh, other entrepreneurial resources or what have you. So creating a, a, um, a, a community uh, that could help 
help support um, as entrepreneur focused and support economic development, but just thinking of it differently, just creating a, creating a space and an ongoing uh, platform for entrepreneurs to, to have a voice. So capital and community, two, two tangible examples of um, uh, putting things in place. Thank you, Philip. You know, Brad, we've heard some specific examples here and some ideas. I know you think a lot about complex systems change. Um, this can be overwhelming. Where do communities start if they really want to change these systems? They just start. Um, I think the really important message is that it's a bottom-up phenomena that evolves over time. Uh, because it's a complex system, it's impossible to have a playbook. There's not a deterministic outcome. The inputs become outputs, and those become inputs into the system. If people don't know what a complex system is or don't sort of uh, relate necessarily to the language. Um, raising a child is an example of a complex system. Second, and both Philip and Twana and their examples used two things I think that are key. One is this notion that much of the progress is bottom up versus top down. Um, it's not something that you prescribe. It's something that emerges from things that people try and do. And language of complexity theory uh, applies. So the word contagion, which is a word that we all are pretty familiar with now, I think because of COVID, you can have both positive and negative contagion. COVID obviously is a negative contagion, but the example that uh, Twana was given about supplier diversity, not just for diversity sake, uh, is a good example of how you could get a contagion to happen um, uh, among large companies. You don't have to get them all to agree on day one to do something. You just need one to engage in a meaningful way. And that will start to spread to others when that one visibly, you know, in the, in the community does what it does and it doesn't have to be limited to place. There's another phenomenon I think that's really important called uh, phase transformation or a phase shift which is that everything, everything feels a certain way. You're making whatever progress you're making feels like it's kind of happening at some pace, often slow. And then suddenly you have a phase shift and you're in a totally different place. And you wake up one day and you're like, whoa, like this is what we were going for. You have to just keep working at it. And then if you have enough critical mass around it, you will get a phase shift. Um, and then the last is a network phenomena, again, that's reflected in what Tuana said and what Philip said, which is language from complexity theory. It's not so much about the parts, it's about the interaction of the parts. And this is one of the very, very, very important uh, concepts that people get wrong a lot in startup communities. It's called the measurement trap, which is that everybody tries to measure things, but they end up measuring the easy things not the important things. Easy things tend to be parts, number of entrepreneurs, number of financings, number of unicorns, number of venture capitalists, number of this, number of that. That's easy to measure, but it's not the important thing. The important thing is the interaction between all those parts. That's hard to manage. It's actually not just that that you're trying to measure. You're trying to measure the quality of the information that travels between the parts. And that's virtually impossible to measure quantitatively, you can measure qualitatively. But as a result, sort of focusing on those interactions, especially when you're applying an equity lens, if the interactions are inequitable, whether gender or race or geography, then you're actually inhibiting the growth and development of your startup community as you start to make sure that the interactions are more equitable, have more equity in them, are connecting in that network, lots of people that are different, both directions, so that the network is not one way. It's not, hi, you can be part of my network, but hey, I wanna be part of your network also. When all of a sudden those interactions start to ex expand that way, some, some really powerful, really magical things start to happen. Thanks, Brad. So before we wrap up this conversation, I want to ask each of you for a final thought on how to build more inclusive ecosystems. Brad, you touched on a lot of themes there, but if you were to wrap it up, what, were, what are your closing thoughts? Well, I, 
I would start with uh, embrace the complexity. Uh, accept that you're not going to be able to put together a five-year plan. Um, you know, most entrepreneurs, when somebody says, what's your five-year plan? The entrepreneur just sort of looks at them like, boy, they really don't get entrepreneurship. Because most entrepreneurs, like maybe they got a plan for a week or two or three or a month, maybe a year. Um, same is true for the evolution and growth of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. If you have a five-year plan, the only thing I can guarantee you about that is it's wrong. So sort of embrace this notion of it of complexity and the idea that it rapidly evolves based on what you do and based on what all the participants in the startup community do. The second is I would eliminate the word culture from the language of entrepreneurship entirely. Um, the word culture is an inhibitor. I use the phrase cultural norm instead. You wanna abstract it away because when people talk about culture or culture fit, in entrepreneurship, it means I want more like me. And if you apply, again, culture is just shorthand for culture fit. Cultural norms is shorthand for what are the principles that I want to apply. Same notion for the startup community. You're constantly trying to extend your cultural norms versus just have more like what we have. Uh, and th then the last thing I leave people with is, it's, not, it's just not a zero sum game. Entrepreneurship is fundamentally a positive sum game uh, in communities, in cities, in states, in countries, um, both place-based, gender-based, uh, race, ethnicity. They can be very powerful positive sum games within and across all of those dimensions. You know, the cliche is rising tides lift all boats. Well, I think anybody that knows that cliche knows that rising tides lift some boats, but not necessarily all boats. But if you focus on this notion that it's a positive sum game, I don't have to win at the expense of you losing, but I can win and you can win. When you start taking that frame of reference and applying it in the context of this across all those different dimensions that we've been talking about, it's really very powerful feeling. And frankly, you know, for someone like me that's had a lot of success, that grew up, you know, in a um, solidly middle class, that had, you know, very loving parents, that, you know, had kind of all the advantages that one would want to have when I started my first, first company. When I reflect on it, like viewing it as a positive sum game across society rather than a positive sum game where I'm just trying to figure out how to get myself and my cohorts further ahead. Uh, at this stage in life, it is very powerful. And I wish I had really, you know, maybe I understood this instinctively when I was younger, but I certainly couldn't articulate it. And I certainly didn't act on it in ways that are as significant as they are today. I just encourage everybody, wherever they are, whatever part of the startup community they're in, to just broadly embrace that construct. Thank you, Brad. Tawana? Your thoughts on inclusive ecosystems? Do something. I think each person who has chosen to invest in listening in today's conversation has the capacity, the wherewithal, the knowledge, the resource, a, a nugget, something to do something. And so I encourage you to do that. Whatever that resources, that um, piece of information, that a knowledge piece, that person that you know that somebody else needs to know, you have the capacity to do something and to do it today. And then tomorrow you'll have the capacity to do something else. And too often um, we wait for the meeting to do something when we could actually do something today. And so I would encourage you to do that, to do something. I um, appreciate certainly the, the feedback that um, uh, Brad just gave um, uh, and that action-oriented um, energy that I feel on this call. I've gotten um, some advice that I'm gonna put to work um, when I get off of uh, this exercise. And so I encourage all of us to use um, the strength and the resources that we have to take action because our economy um, is dependent on it. Our communities are depending on it. And um, we find more strength when we're together than we do when we are apart. Um, and you never know who on the other end of that phone um, is waiting for the call that you're gonna make. Thank you.
Philip, your final thoughts. I am. Um, it's hard to build on what Tawana and Brad just um, just laid forward, but I am, um, and I, I appreciate it. It's it's absolutely spot on. And I would just say on the on the the measurement piece that um, that Brad mentioned, uh, you know, and even in the work that we do internally is making sure that you know metrics, outputs, and outcomes, and all of those different things. When you're trying to look at overhaul, and you're looking at systems overhaul, systems change overhaul, and transform transformative work, absolutely, you can look at markers along the way. As Brad said, look at what are people doing, how are people interacting, how are things changing in the moment, and look at that. But don't try to completely, you know prescribe it and what it will be five years it's 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 forming because we're talking about we're in a period we're in a period of time that happens every 60 to 100 years so addressing this in a way that is in a cookie cutter fashion is not is not going to it's not going to work so um and to get to prosperity that's truly inclusive for everyone that looks at a lot of different things and it's it's inspiring that we're going to be looking at a number of different things in order to you know r reach uh, reach the where we want to be for for everyone so um you know entrepreneurial economy with a level playing field takes work and so we have work to do but uh with brad and tawana doing the work that they're doing uh and other organizations that we work with i'm i'm confident we're going to get there but I, I'm, I'm inspired as well um tawana i've got and Brad, I've been taking a lot of notes. I got a lot of things I can do after this call. Thank you, Philip. That's all the time we have for this conversation. Thank you so much to our panelists, Tawana Black with the Center for Economic Inclusion, Brad Feld, author and ecosystem builder, and Philip Gaskin with the Kauffman Foundation. You've given entrepreneurial ecosystem leaders and entrepreneurs much to think about and to do to create true equity and inclusion in our communities. For our viewers, the conversation isn't over. Now is our collective opportunity to reinvent, repair, reimagine, and to rebuild better. Please keep it going in your communities and on your social media networks. Share your ideas for practical solutions. Thank you for listening to this Kauffman Foundation podcast. For more stories on growing an inclusive economy, please visit us at emkf.org forward slash podcast. The Uncommon Voices series brings new perspectives and opinions on topics related to the Kauffman Foundation's work. The perspectives of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kauffman Foundation, but are presented here to celebrate uncommon voices and civil discourse to move conversations forward.